You're listening to the Get Fucking Real Show. Strap in as your host, Lisa Cherney, takes you on a ride full of GFR moments. From powerful messages to exclusive interviews to untold stories of super shitty moments before big successes. And even real-life confessions. Lisa's been mentoring millionaire entrepreneurs for over 20 years, coaching top coaches and tapping her mighty woo-woo side to mentor the best of the best spiritual peeps. It's time to bring on the straight talk from successful, soulful entrepreneurs, inspiring you to live without regrets, to create your legacy, and be unapologetically you. And now, it's time to GFR. Life is too short to be a slave to your own dream Cause I'm working too hard And I want to feel so alive I jump out of bed because I love my life Living on my terms, I know that I will thrive Being myself, clarity will arrive So I'll stand out and be J-U-I-C-Y Hello, I'm Lisa Cherney, and this is the GFR show, and I am so happy that you are here. And I want to make an announcement that we're going to, I'm going to be taking a little bit of a hiatus here from the show, about a month and a half, or in our world, that's three episodes. And that is because I am taking a partial sabbatical in the month of September, to create space for my grieving process. And part of my sabbatical is taking a break from the show, taking a break from any significant marketing campaigns, and also taking a break from some of the one-on-one service with my unmentor clients. And of course, they're being so incredibly loving and understanding. And I will be back at it. My intention is to be you know, back at it in October We'll be back online with the GFR show mid-October. And we're going to see what, you know, what comes up for me. You know, what I don't have any plans other than to have space to really feel into what is it that I need. I'm really discovering that grief is not something that a lot of people talk about, even though we've all experienced it. And, you know, being a grieving entrepreneur is something that I'm finding myself feeling a little bit alone in, which is also quite remarkable considering I know there are so many of you that have dealt with significant loss. And so I'm going to deal with my loss. And then it's very likely it's going to be something that I talk about in a significant way because I feel, I guess I'm just destined to talk about stuff that, you know, people don't always feel safe to talk about. So this episode is perfectly timed because it's about inauthenticity. And I think that's a big reason why I'm taking my sabbatical is because I was feeling like I wasn't being totally 100% present with my clients the way I always love to. And that like, I just don't know how to fake it, y'all. I'm just, it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> so thank goodness I'm, I'm willing, like the discomfort of being inauthentic is like greater than the discomfort of, you know, having to figure out how to like take a break. So I'm taking a break and I, because I, authenticity is such a significant value for me. And today's guest, Mitchell Levy has evolved from, you know, the idea of authentic to credibility. And he is an expert in credibility. In fact, he's interviewed 500 thought leaders on credibility for his international best-selling book, Credibility Nation. So let me give you a question. We like to kick off the introduction of our guest with a question. And, and here's the question for you to think about. Do you know when you are being inauthentic? Such a great question, right? Because it takes some level of self-awareness to say, I did not speak up my, I did not speak up just then, <laughs> you know, or I'm living a lie or, or when someone said, where do you want to go for dinner? I said, whatever you want, dear. And I, that wasn't what I meant, <laughs> you know, it kind of spans the whole, the gamut. I think when we look at you know, when we're being inauthentic. And Mitchell has a juicy story that started when in his first job, this is uh, his first boss 
who was actually a professor of his that then invited him over to work for him, which was, I'm sure, super exciting for this young, young man. And this boss really turned out to be hedonistic and narcissistic and taught him a ton of poor lessons that he says stuck with him for 36 years. And it wasn't until then that he really like overcame this inauthenticity, basically taking actions and being in the world and being in corporate in the way that this person taught him that really turned out to not be his true self, which was a significant thing for Mitchell to come and talk about with me because he is a credibility expert. And he's a super accomplished entrepreneur. He's created 20 businesses in Silicon Valley. He's been on the chairman of the board of a NASDAQ listed company. He's an executive coach with Marshall Goldsmith, 100 coaches. Like these are a lot of credentials. And that is not the same as a credibility in the way that Mitchell teaches it and has studied it. It really is more closely aligned with authenticity with, with some nuances, which he will share with you. So thank you for welcoming in with an open heart, just like you do with all of our guests. And thank you for seeing you maybe where your story is somewhere in what Mitchell shares. I think that is the gift of this show and and very much so. And I'm going to thank publicly here, Rodney Flowers, who was our guest for episode 88. The title of his show was From Defying Crippling Odds to Mastering the Resilience Game. And Rodney and I and Mitchell are all in this organization called the Evolutionary Business Council. And it was in Mitchell listening to Rodney's amazing interview that had him reach out to me and say, I I really want to be on your show. And he really, you know, I said to him, you know, you're on my show, you know, you kind of got to dig deep and be vulnerable and you will hear he's really done that. So without further ado, welcome to our show and to you, our guests, the interview with Mitchell Levy. Mitchell Levy, the Mitchell Levy. Welcome to the GFR show. Lisa, thank you. It is always (laughs) amazing to spend time with you and be in your presence. Well, thank you so much. I'm really glad you reached out. And I'm excited to get to know you. We have met, we've been on virtual events. We had a one-on-one, mostly, you know, around like business collaboration and stuff. And then when you reached out and you're like, I just listened to the episode, which one was it? And one of our other EBC members, you had just listened to the, yeah, to no, the no, episode. I'm struggling too. Yeah. I'm like, oh, look at this. It'll pop okay. into our heads. Um, <laughs> and you're like, I want to be on the show. And I was like, okay, well, this show is really about, you know, like your vulnerability story what you got <laughs> and i i really under i could really feel from you you're like i want to go there like i want to share some things i haven't before and so i'm i'm really honored and we'll just you know we'll have fun we'll just meander through the story and it'll be fun well thank you well, i'm not sure i really want to go there but i i think it needs to be told and i will put myself in your capable hands is my pleasure. And and I have had people confess and share all kinds of beautiful, you know, traumatic, life-altering stories that make them fucking badasses. And you're <laughs> for sure one of them, you know. I just feel like it's like our badass, you know, punch that credential of, you know, I've been through. I've been through it. And I for one have, you know, speaking, you're a credibility expert. Like I, for one, I, I actually appreciate those types of credentials way more than anyone's degrees, honestly. I mean, and you got some kick-ass credentials, you know, in the companies that you've built and, you know, industries that you've dominated. And, and I think I'll probably have even, you know, just a deeper respect for you after today. By the way, thank you. I appreciate that. And and I do agree. One of the things that came out of the interviews, and we'll talk about that later, the 500 interviews, is the PhD in the School of Hard Knocks outweighs the PhD every day. For sure. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Okay. So we talked about starting when you were a kid and there was something in particular that you felt was like a poignant place to start. So tell us about that. You know, when I was nine, my 
parents got divorced. And, you know, I go back and forth. Sometimes I call him my dad. Most of the time I call him my bio dad because he was never really a father. Sure. In my life. And I think it was always, it was bio dad when I was still angry. Nowadays, I don't have any anger. And I, I think the, I've learned the lesson of forgiveness. So I, I forgive him. And what happened though, is here's a nine-year-old kid, the oldest of three children, mom's a school teacher. And so on a school teacher salary with three kids, we were poor. Not that mom ever let us feel like we're poor. And, and dad did this sort of the helicopter thing, right? He'd, He'd drive, he'd drive in, grab us for a day, like take us to the movies or whatever it is. And, and I think what my questions were even then is what's a father supposed to be? Right. Like from an integrity perspective, what is, what is dad? Cause this didn't feel right. And up to the age of nine, it doesn't sound like there was a large example either. No, I, I remember I remember occasionally getting scolded for stuff that didn't feel like was the right thing to be scolded for, but I, there wasn't anything particular. I was a naive kid, like anyone else. When, when he packed his car and drove away, I like had no clue. You didn't know like that. He was really like leaving. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And where are you and the three kids, the middle, the oldest? The oldest. The oldest. Okay. So the, the quote unquote, the quote unquote protector, although I I don't know if if that was something I did. My siblings and and mom says that I took that role, but I don't I don't remember. So oh interesting. Yeah. It's and it's interesting that she saw you take that role, but it wasn't something that you kind of remember a role playing that role with your siblings. No, I I was regular. Well, I don't know if this is regular or not. You know, my my brother and I would always fight. I had a lot of anger issues when I was younger, which I think stemmed from it, but not sure. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting inquiry because, and and I and I think we often talk on the GFR show about like what is normal, like what the fuck is normal anyway, right? Like because we're like, I don't know if that was normal, and you know that was kind of abnormal, and well, this was, you know, and with the variety and the technicolor examples on this show of, you know, what a childhood looks like, I really don't, I don't even know if what we might characterize as normal is actually normal. Like, does that even exist? <laughs> it's always brother, like... <laughs> it's a, I have to tell you, the words came out of my mouth. I said, I can't believe I said that because it's, I think normal is whatever happened to you. Like yeah. most, well, And we want normal. Like, I think that that's part of like, as a kid, you like want to be normal, whatever you think that is, the mother, the father, and they, you know, watch TV on Saturday nights and they load up in a station wagon to go, you know, on a road trip and, you know, mom and dad somewhat like each other and, you know, whatever that looks like, you know, my husband actually had the station wagon, but he was the youngest and he was stuck in the back, you know, facing the other direction. And he's like a metaphor for his life. You know, it's just like always was in the back, you know, of the station wagon. So yeah, it's kind of, it's an interesting thing that we crave as, as young people. And, and it's probably something that's forever elusive. Mm. I don't know if it's elusive. Okay. I think it, I think for me at some point in time you recognize you're okay. Yes, okay, but not necessarily normal. Well, what happens is it's the normal for you is what helped you become who you are. Yeah. Yeah. And so without I think what happens Lisa is when you're a kid life happens to you. Right. And then at some point in time, the life happens for you. Right. Things happen and you and you learn. And then and then maybe you grow to a place where life happens by you. Yeah. Do and you so, remember when you I'm sorry, I just had this thought about we could oh, shared about you were an angry kid. And I thought, do you have a sense for because I think it will parallel the 
timeline that you're, you know, you're outlining of like, you know, it's to you and then it's for you and then it's by you. Do you have a sense for when you stopped being so angry? (laughs) That's a great question. Somewhere around 15, 16. I mean, I, I was as with my brother, maybe a little bit with my sister, but not as much. She was eight years younger. Yeah, we'd we'd fight all the time. And somewhere around 15 or 16, I got really angry at dad. I mean, yelling, cursing type angry. And that lasted, I'm trying to think about, it could be somewhere through college, maybe. I'm one of those kids that I think with parents, by the way, boys are not as good as as girls. I don't know if I appreciated either the parents. It's hard to appreciate the dad, but I don't know if I really appreciated my mom until I was like 24. Yeah. Like in terms of who she brought to us. And and I don't know if it was then or a couple years earlier. It might have been somewhere in college. I just started getting less, less angry. I don't know if I if I really forgived him until I learned the final lesson of forgiveness, which was just a couple of years ago. Yeah, which is so beautiful that you learned it, you know, in this lifetime. Well, know? before I died. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. So you had said when we were chatting, preparing for an interview that you had no dad until you were 19. So what happened at 19? I'm going to say 18. 18. It was when I went off to college, my mom found a man he she loved and married. And, and my stepfather was more of a father than any other figure. That said, I was I I had just I had left for school. So his impact was when I'd come home for holidays and stuff and 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 family vacations. So not the same as as living full time. And he passed somewhere towards the beginning of COVID of, of brain cancer. Oh wow. And but he was he was the person I would call dad. Thank you for sharing that. So it sounds like you stopped being angry around the time that he entered the picture, because you said that also coincided with college. Not immediately. It's an interesting observation. I don't remember exactly, but it I think it was more like sophomore, junior year-ish. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you were having the experience of having a father and you were, you know, going on family vacations. And when you came home, there was like this nuclear family that wasn't there when you left to go to college. Agreed. So, that was fascinating. Yeah. Um, So I could see that a bit sort of maybe melting your heart or having you maybe open your heart, right? It really sounds like you opened your heart. You opened your heart to your stepdad, which is not always easy. (laughs) So maybe. uh, And your siblings were home, right? Your your brother and your sister were still home. So they kind of had a different experience than you of this new man entering the picture. They definitely had a different experience. Right. Right. And that's interesting. I, I still think even when he was stepdad, dad was in, in my, uh, we'll just say stepdad. And, and although he's really dad and the other one's bio dad, but anyway, when he was in our lives, I still was angry at bio dad. I still was. And I still think, I don't know exactly when that there was a point in time where I just then became, I, I switched from anger to ambivalent. Yeah. Well, and I hear, I heard, that you were angry when you were young, younger. And I I feel like I'm hearing two different sort of phases of like, just like I was like an angry kid. And then like, I was still angry at bio dad. Right. So I, it sounds like it's interesting. Wasn't as like a pervasive state when you went to college, like I'm just still an angry young man. It was like, I still wasn't letting my dad off the hook, my bio dad off the hook, but you, you know, had love you were opening yourself up for this other man, this other, you know, male figure. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. I'll say yes to that. 
<laughs> Agreed. <laughs> we often connect dots here on the GFR show that are, you know, it's like, cause we don't, uh, you know, we don't often don't get to like really tell our story or share our story and then sort of kind of have like, you know, dialogue all really, you know, this is a trail that we're, you know, we're forging this trail towards who you are today. And so sometimes with that context that we connect different dots, you know, so yeah. So what did you decide to study in school and why? Mm. So I have an undergrad and an MBA. I originally went to the University of Miami and I I started studying because it was University of Miami and my grandparents were there, which is why I applied at the University of Miami. And they were they were close by. And and I my first semester was international finance and marketing because Miami, what a better place. And my high school years as this angry guy, I was horrible. I got I got bad grades, you know, C's. Maybe I got occasional B's. I think my 800 is a perfect SAT scores. This was before there were three sets of SAT scores. I think <laughs> I got 800 with the two SAT scores combined together. Right? So, you know, Miami accepted me and and it turned out that after my first semester, it was so easy. Like things clicked, like in school. I nice being I away from home up, probably was really good. Getting away from home wasn't bad, and I got lucky enough. Now I wish in the social media days I'd know who this was, but there were these <laughs> two really gorgeous girls and I ended up hanging out with them. And on Friday nights they hung out in the library. So I just ended up getting good habits and my <laughs> my first and it was funny because i wanted to hang out with these gorgeous girls makes my perfect first, sense <laughs> it's but a how a guy thinks right and and my first semester i ended up with two b's and the rest were a's and then the second semester was one b and all a's and then the rest of my college career i got all a's and what ended up happening between the first semester and second it felt so common sense, like the business stuff felt so common sense. I went to my guidance counselor. I said, what is the hardest thing I, I want? I still want a business degree. What is the hardest thing I could take? And it turned out there is a program taught by the industrial engineering school. And it was called, by the way, I love saying this because there's so many syllables. It was a bachelor of science in stochastic and deterministic operational research. Okay. So, so what that means, by the way, if I'm going to make put that in English, I was given the tools to model people and systems and improve them. Okay. And I can actually say, oh, and here's the cool part. The University of Miami had, I think, like 3,000 people in the business school, or, or maybe it's 3,000 people graduating, maybe 6,000 in business school. And there were four people in my program. Right. Because it's not many yeah. people did that. And at the end of the on the graduating time, I was the one that the dean chose, even though I wasn't the valedictorian, I was the, the one that the dean chose to accept the diploma at the end. Nice. Because I was in politics. My sport, by the way, was ultimate frisbee. I played ultimate frisbee. I was in politics. And I could say now, so serendipity brought me to or what I sometimes like to say is Gus. So yes. God, universe, spirit. So I use yes. Gus. So Gus presented me the opportunity to take an undergraduate degree, which I could surprisingly say I use my entire life. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. You know, my daughter right now is applying to schools and and her friends are applying to schools and what are they majoring in? And, you know, it's a it's a really interesting to be at this this precipice, you know, like looking back, like I majored in communication for no other reason other than that it was something I was good at, like talking, mm. you know, <laughs> which turned out to work to my benefit. And, and here we are. But, yeah, it's just it's interesting how relevant or irrelevant that the formal education part of the education, you know, versus the social and the sociological and all the other benefits. So you start your first job and you meet your first mentor. So tell us about that. I will. Do you mind if I tell you how I went from undergraduate to grad school? I'd love for you to tell us that. <laughs> so it ended up that I went to Europe at the end of college 
And I spent two and a half months there. Coolest thing in the world, right? URL pass, like no responsibility. And during that time frame, apparently, I was accepted at the University of Miami, and I had a half tuition fellowship. And I was accepted at the College of William and Mary with also a half tuition, but a half tuition scholarship. And mom never let me know this. So this is a place that mom doesn't always agree to, but she never let me know that the College of William and Mary stuff came in. <laughs> but and, she swears to this day that she told you. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I got home, I read it. I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. And on the way driving from where we were living, Philadelphia to Miami, we stopped at the College of William and Mary. Beautiful campus. So I checked into the dorms at the University of Miami, and I called up the dean at the College of William & Mary, and I told him I was not around. I didn't get the letter. Is the scholarship still available? Not that I expected to do anything with it. And he goes, oh, give me a minute. So he went away and came back. He said, yeah, Mitchell, not only is it available, we'd like to make it a full tuition fellowship. Okay. And I'm like, that's what I said. I'm like, and, and you know, normally people would say, oh, my God, that's amazing. And of course, I'm like, oh. That's really cool. But, you know, I only have one year at the University of Miami and your program is two years. Can you do anything about that? <laughs> and he goes, well, we'll take it. We'll take a semester off. Okay. I'm like, okay. So that's Good negotiating. How to, that's how I got to the College of William & Mary. Now, the what I didn't realize at the time is undergraduate, every answer was in the back of the book. That's how I got to the, you know, the straight A's is that the answers were there. And if the teacher on the first day, if you actually listened, the teacher actually gave 40% of the final exam when they were talking about the excitement of the course. And so I get to College of William & Mary and I was, because I had a semester taken off, I was in the classroom with first and second years. And one of the things that grad school does, and so I got my MBA, College of William Mary, but one of the things that that the classroom does is that they teach you that the answer is not in the back of the book. <laughs> so here I am with second years. A good metaphor for life right there. <laughs> exactly. And, and here I am with second years and they didn't like me, A, because I got a semester taken off and B, I still thought the answer was in the back of the book. And so- you know, it was, it was at University of Miami, this didn't happen. And then in College of William Mary, there were people who were like, Mitchell, really, you need to get on board. You're missing the boat. And that was fascinating. I did an independent study with one of the teachers and came up with some fascinating way to prove his models working. And what was interesting to me is, is two weeks after sh sharing all the results and making, this is one of those two or three in the morning sort of uh, Epiphanies. Yeah. And I was I was using statistical programming analysis to, to prove his theories to be right. And I shared it with him. And about two, three weeks later, I go into his office and I go, you know, I have figured out this. I'm starting to write the paper. I want to be published because that was to me what credibility was at the time. And he, I said, can we do this? And he said, no, really? He says, well, because I use this material to get a job at this firm and I'd like you to come with me. And so that's actually how I got to okay. Boston. Okay. All right. Awesome. And that was to, to that was my it turns out my first male mentor who who was unfortunately I didn't necessarily realize this in the time hedonistic and narcissistic. Okay. So he was your former professor at grad school that brought you with him to your first job in Boston. Okay. So when I read hedonistic and narcissistic, now narcissistic, I'm super familiar with. Narcissists fuck up a lot of people. <laughs> and hedonistic, I would love for you to share more about what that looked like in this person. How did that, I mean, both, you could share both, how both showed up, but I'm a particular interest around the hedonistic characterization. Well, it's all about at the end of the day, the fundamental truth was about his pleasure okay. and how he mentored was okay, this is when you get to this stage, this is how you're going to get pleasure and how you should treat people. And I was taught to actually expect it's it was a little bit more along the lines of command and control 
And the person okay. who commands is the one who gets anything they want. Okay. And to treat people almost as second-class citizens because they work for you. Okay. And I, it was, and, and so the hedonistic stuff was, hey, I earned getting here and you're going to serve me, <laughs> kind of, right? And that's what I meant by the, the hedonistic stuff, the, the pleasure associated with him doing whatever he needed for him. So from a credibility perspective, many things that were not necessarily credible because it all revolved around his, his scheme of what life meant. And how is that different from narcissism? narcissism is in this, in this case trying to to do things that potentially hurt others so he had a mashup of being self-serving and also demeaning to others and mentored you and that's sort of like that's the way one does things it, it was it was in the business space my first male mentor and i believe i was craving for a male to mentor me in the business world and I thought, hey, this is the way it needs to work. And Lisa, what one of the outcomes was, and this is what I, I actually said this in my first TEDx, and, and it's when I did my first TEDx, which was in 2017, is when I actually realized that I was with him for only a year. And at the time, I said he was with me for 13 this particular thing I had to unlearn when I, in 1997, when I left corporate, was the thing I needed to unlearn. And what he taught me was when somebody asked me a question, anyone in the firm asked me a question, the answer is not what I thought was the right answer. The answer was the answer that I thought he would say. That's what he taught me. Okay. So you alluded to this and I was going to kind of ask you about it like why do you feel like you were particularly susceptible to kind of molding to his perspective on things probably a couple reasons i mean first sort of male mentor in a authoritative position I, and I'm putting up the double quotes for those who are radio whose goal was to make me a better person Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Quotes. Yep. Got it. <laughs> and so he was showing me the ropes, like what he would do for himself that worked for him and what I should be expecting and what I should be doing. And, and I just, he filled a void that, I mean, it must felt great to have somebody say like, Hey, I want to bring you over to this, you know, company and choose you. And like, that must've. Oh, Serendipity or Gus has given me almost everything I've done has been some moments where the right present. And to me, that was the right present. The right present was given to me because mm -hmm. if I hadn't accepted that and been in Boston, I wouldn't have met my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. Yes. I was going to ask you where, when she entered the story. So it was in Boston. <laughs> yeah. So you might need to go back into your like archives of your memory, but can you think of an example of a moment or period of time where you were an incident? Really? That's the word I was looking for when you were working with him and he like guided you to do something. And like, you like had an awareness, like this doesn't feel good or this isn't me or can you can you think of a specific example or a story that really illustrates the insidiousness of this male mentor in your life at the time i what sort of it, it, by the way it is a struggle what's popping to mind was i had a a couple people who were working for me at the time and one of them wasn't delivering the way it was some of the programming necessary to make and deploy what we're doing on the investment side. And he wasn't quote unquote working in the way that was traditional. And so when I asked my boss what to do, he says, well, you should yell at him, yell at him and, and, and sort of irk it out of him versus working in a team manner and other things. And, and I just said, Oh, Okay. I mean, I wasn't sure. I don't know 
if I knew better to realize that that was a bad thing. I mean, I wish I did. I'm not convinced it bothered me, Lisa. I, I, because I said, what should I do? And the person who was my boss said, do this. And I'm like, okay, I'll do this. Right. Like, I mean, you're in retrospect, obviously now years and years and years later, you know, that that's not your style, but it's must be interesting to look back on that kid, that young kid in his first job was told to go yell at somebody. And it didn't even occur to you to question that as maybe not being. That's a great, that's a great statement. Yeah. I was brought in that era that you're not supposed to question authority in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And the hedonism characterization is, is interesting because, you know, it's about pleasure, right? And essentially hedonistic is a, and you know, we often think of it as sexual pleasure, which it totally can be, but it's just this orienting toward my, someone's pleasure. Like they are self-centered around maximum pleasure for them. Right. And so it sounds like you really are able to look back and be like, this guy just did whatever, (laughs) like whatever had him, you know, was ever floated his boat was basically, you know, it sounds like he was a bit of a dictatorship around, you know, what worked for him. That sounds about right. I mean, I'm trying to figure out it did lead into things that he did, which were also cheating on his spouse and other things. But that's you know, there was, it was really about the hedonistic part was the only answer I could give when one of his peers asked me a question would be the answer that he wanted me to share. You felt like I knew exactly what he would want me to say. And that's what I said. And I'm a little uncomfortable saying that, but that made me inauthentic throughout my entire corporate career. I spent 13 years in corporate and I, I don't want to admit this publicly, but I will to you. I that made me inauthentic. And I and I don't I don't ever feel like I was not authentic, but for if I'm looking at it from a pure perspective, somebody asked me a question, and am I giving my opinion or am I giving the perspective of what I think my boss wants to hear? And this is, you know, once again, I was only with at 13 years in corporate, I was only with that first guy for one year. And every time for the 13 years, I'd ask, I'd answer a question. It would, I'd always go to, okay, what is the lens in which I can answer this question? Okay, here's my boss. What does my boss want me to say? Okay, then I answer the question in that world. I couldn't get, until I started working for myself, I did not get away from that. Mm. What has you feel so reluctant to admit that? Given that I wear the hat, global credibility expert saying that I was inauthentic feels uncomfortable. What I feel when you shared that is a lot of compassion for that young man. Yeah. What I can say for you, thank you for that. I had at one point in time, I was at Sun Microsystems for, I think I spent nine years at Sun and I've had I had during that time two different bosses that came to me who basically said, Mitchell, you know, the way you're treating people, if you were better as a team person, we would probably see you moving towards VP and beyond. So it it would have been a different existence than the one that I have at the moment. I believe everything happens to 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 you or for you, right? So that was something I needed. That person would have been better prepared for the dot-com days and the things that came out of it if I was a better team player. I find it really touching to witness how much of a you know stretch it feels for you to you know, talk about that young man and his, you know, inauthentic corporate career and how perhaps harsh you were with people and how you didn't have your own voice and, you know, just kind of answered the way you thought, you know, the boss would want you to and maybe yelled more than you whatever now. And like, I just feel so much tenderness for that young man who that's the way he was shown is the from a very influential person at an influential time in his life. And I just, I feel a lot of tenderness for that young man. And also for you in this moment, 
of like reflecting on that time in your life. And yeah, it feels like there's maybe some space for deeper forgiveness for yourself for that time in your life. Hmm. Maybe. I'm not sure. Okay. It's a great observation. I'll have to, I'll have to think that through. I believe I forgave my first boss and me in 2021. Lisa, it was when I was preparing for my second TED Talk. And what it, this was during COVID times. And so I, oh, can I tell you some magic words? Would you mind? Uh, oh, sure. So when I did my first, when I did my first TED talk, there were, th- there were some magic words. Like this was before COVID and I was going to a lot of events and all I would do is call the organizer organizer ahead of time. And I said, you know, I'd like to practice for a TEDx I'm doing. Can I grab, do you have any stage time? Everyone said yes. Like <laughs> magic words. Like it's like, like Jack and the Beanstalk. So during the second TEDx, it was COVID time. So I, there was none of that. I ended up reaching out to 30 different people, two people twice. So I guess 28, who I asked them for support in taking a look at, can I present them the TEDx and they give me feedback. And a guy by the name of Ted Lau said something. He was my 10th reviewer. And he said something that that realized, because I thought I had gotten rid of all that silliness from my first boss and I'd gotten over all those things. And he goes, he goes, Mitchell, that particular talk is we are losing our humanity and I'm tired of watching it happen. And it's focused mm. on credibility. And he, he goes, Mitchell, do you realize that the people who are acting dubious, dubious to me is the opposite of credible. People are acting dubious. They're innocent because they're just doing what they were taught. And the people before them were taught that way as well. So they're practicing these dubious behaviors, but it's not their fault. And so, by the way, cool enough that I actually included his name in the in the TEDx, but it also like I almost immediately said, oh, I need to forgive my first boss because it's it really wasn't his fault. And I believe at that time, and I'll I'll go, I'll do a little bit of introspection. I believe I forgave me too, that little guy, me, because you know, he I just did what he told me and I I it's not my fault. And 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 he just did what however he was mentored, what they shared with him. And so it just, it just is. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And I, 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 I love your connection to your like healing process. And the only reason I brought it up is because it felt like it was still tender, which doesn't necessarily mean that there might not be, you know, some remnants. I just was feeling so much compassion for that young man. And yeah. And, you know, what you're sharing around, you know, we just do what we're taught. I mean, I took a unconscious racial bias course of study for about nine months through the Evolutionary Business Council, which is the organization where we met. I mean, that is essentially, you know, what unconscious racial or any other unconscious bias is about is us just, you know, it's not our fault. We are acting from what we were taught, you know, and from the the topic of authenticity is like, it's kind of like brings me back to our topic around normal. Is there really a normal? And I think, well, what for, for some of us, what really is authentic? I mean, hmm. do we even know what, you know, I, and I, you know, we both help people with marketing words, you know, and when somebody talks about well, help people be authentic, when I think, well, do the people you're wanting to help even know that they're not authentic? You know, and the, the the journey to authenticity, like I, I feel like it's to a certain extent, it it's a product of being on the earth longer to even know like this is me, this isn't me, this resonates with me, this doesn't, this feels good, this doesn't, dare I say what feels good and what doesn't to 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 people, to authorities, to you know, so that young man was on any journey to unravel influences on his life and figure out who the fuck he it really is. So yeah, those are my thoughts on that. <laughs> I'm going to say the reason lots of times when people ask me, Mitchell, why credibility, why not authenticity or why not integrity? 
And I think when I finished the research, I don't even think I could have answered that question, but I've now had 18 months of, of deploying it. And, and the answer is helping someone be authentic is great, but you need authenticity with a moral compass because you could authentically be, I could authentically be a an asshole like your an asshole mentor. <laughs> because my, 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 I could authentically be the person that my boss told me I should be and I'm authentic, right? I, and he was being authentic. He was be he was being authentic, and that's why I I have a hard time with that word because I okay. I think I was I think I was authentically being like that's what I I feel like I've been I was authentically me at the time because I was working in the paradigm of what I knew. It just when I look at it from a when I put it in my head only and not my heart, I'm like yeah. But if Mitchell, if you weren't speaking your truth, you were speaking what you thought somebody else's truth was. That's that's a definition of inauthenticity. So that's why it's uncomfortable for me to say those words. I'm glad sure. we dialed down to this. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. So did your wife notice a change in you when you overcame your inauthenticity? How did that oh. impact your marriage, your relationship? Hmm. That's a good question. Yes. And I don't think it had any effect. To answer your question directly. So I will answer your question because there is, it did have some effect. So it was really when I when I left corporate, I left some microsystems and I, I put up the shingle and I started doing my own consulting stuff. I was an e-commerce consultant during the doc during the dot-com days. I went to one of my friends, one of my old bosses, and ended up he wanted me to do SEO work. Which, by the way, at first I thought, wait, I left Sun Microsystems to be a strategic consultant in e-commerce and you wanted me to do SEO work. And I just said, there's something that says I should say yes. So I said yes. And when I went to the first, and I immediately when I said yes, I, what I, I ended up quoting him a price. He added a little bit to it. We picked up five clients. And when I went to the first client and, and said, hey, what's your... 30 second elevator pitch. And he took 10 minutes. And by the way, all five clients took 10 minutes to articulate their 30 second clarity, clarity focus on their elevator pitch. He shared all that. And then he shared me his website and the new marketing plans. And he said, what do you think? You know, so he'd been talking for 10, 15 minutes. And I looked at the whole thing and I, I kind of, it was the first time that I actually answered for me. And I mm. said, I didn't literally do this. So for those on the radio, I'm like crossing my chest and protecting myself. I, I call it the family feud. <laughs> I, I didn't act. Thank you. I didn't actually do that. But I then I it was almost like I backed up and, and protected myself. And I said, I think it sucks. And his response was, wow, nobody ever talks to me that way. Tell me more. <laughs> And it was, so when I came home, how my, I have the best spouse in the world and all she really cares about is that I'm happy. We always say this happy, happy spouse, happy life. That truly is her. And, and that truly is me. And, and she noticed the level of happiness I had of just being able to tell my truth. Like she did notice that. And it was, it was powerful. It was, it, it didn't affect our relationship because I never answered questions for her in in what I thought my boss would want to hear because she wasn't she wasn't my boss and whatever my boss I think like that was that was separate. It was also, by the way, I believe I was always me most of my life. Like the the same me who's a friend is the same me who's a family person is the same me who's you know the spouse or or father. But clearly, I must not have been when I was inauthentic at work. And this just freed me up to be the same person everywhere. Yeah. I mean, being able to be congruent is like, to me, that's like, that's like everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So that sounds like it was a, like a pretty big, like moment, like almost like if you were doing a movie, it would have been like a real slow-mo where he asked you, what do you think? And, you know, like there would be this like indication that you were really like thinking and wondering, should I say it? Should I not? You know? And then you, like you said, you kind of like kind of protected yourself a little bit and sort of went for it. And that, that really kind of 
in a way kind of like broke the chains that that first, you know, mentor like ultimately broke those chains that first male mentor had. I was going to say not entirely. Okay. I thought, by the way, I actually honestly thought it was entirely. I really did. And, and, but the chain that was missing was the one of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. I think these things are just so layered. You know, like, I mean, how many times have I been like, shit, I thought I dealt with that, you know, and there's like just another like another cut at it, like a deeper cut, you know, at the thing, you know, as our like life unfolds. So it sounds like you really make it your practice to seek those like deeper cuts and self-awareness. I'm now focused, obviously, on on, on credibility all the time and and. One of the things that came out, one of the ten, there are 10 values of credibility. One of the 10 values was being coachable. And what's fascinating is we're not taught when we grow up that our coach could be anybody. But when you go through life and navigate it, your coach can be anybody. Age. I mean, there is nothing, there's no one person in life that can't give you a lesson that you could take with you. And I now am aggressively seeking aha moments from people who can coach. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it's very, very cool. And I could see that you're, you know, ultimately your project where you interviewed 500 thought leaders on credibility, and then you published your book must've been really like a very healing process for you. Again, I'm thinking of with compassion with that young man who was, you know, you know, just being taught a way of being in the world that ultimately wasn't, you know, aligned with, you know, who you are. I don't know. It sounds like possibly that was a, you know, a pretty healing journey for you. Kind of fill, fill yourself, fill yourself up and also serve the whole conversation around what credibility looks like for us it just within our own, like, what is our own self credibility? I mean, I, mm -hmm. I think your take on it is, you know, that was one of the things we talked about when we had our one on one was like, well, credibility to me is like credentials and like, you know, like things that make us somebody believe that we are an expert at something, you know, and your take on it is a, almost like a twist on authenticity. Do you feel like there was some healing and sort of like a like a deep evolution that happened during that those interviews? that whole process of writing that book. So you are going to be the first one I hear this with. And I, I don't, the book was definitely a part of it. And I did the 500 interviews because it was this Napoleon Hill inspired moment. If I interview 500 people, I'll get a book. <laughs> and so I did that. And it was somewhere around 95% of the way through. So it was in July of 2020. When here's what happened. 98% of those people I interviewed could not articulate their purpose in 10 words or less. 98% could not articulate who they served and how they served them. For me, I call this a CPOP, a customer point of possibilities. And it turns out I have a superpower at this. And I believe it's something that's teachable. So if I could teach other people how to help others articulate their CPOP, their customer point of possibilities, that means that we weren't taught this. And if we weren't taught this, what other things about credibility were we not taught? And so it was around that July-ish timeframe that I kind of woke up and realized, hey, I'm not doing this because I'm getting the credibility of having a book so I could call myself a global credibility expert. I'm doing this because I have a life purpose I did not actually previously know I had. Mm-hmm. I believe I might have been asked to focus on that life purpose forever. And I've just, maybe I ignored it for so many reasons because I thought it was way too big. So when I first started the interviews, I went back to my, my stochastic and deterministic models and operational research, you know, undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't need to, I didn't need to actually research what to do. I just knew I did this in undergrad. And the truth is, I didn't know what questions to ask or what to keep track of until people started coming late or people didn't come prepared, right? Or people didn't show me their heart. How can I see somebody if they don't show me their heart? And so I started keeping track of that sort of work. And, and when I realized at the end that it's actually, it's very simple, not easy. 
to actually show up as yourself and to be you and to get people to see you as you. And subsequently, if you are credible in a way where people see you, they're going to want to recommend you. And and so, so I ended up coming up with a definition of credibility. It's the quality in which you're trusted, known, and liked. And prior to the internet, it didn't matter if people really knew you. They just needed to trust you. Prior to the internet, it didn't matter if people liked you. They just needed to trust you and, and, and you get to at least know of them, not know them. And so my bigger vision in life, which by the way, I still don't know how to get to, but I know how to have fun trying. So I'm <laughs> holding up for those on the podcast, I'm holding up a scale and credibility. I call it credibility nation. It's a it's, picture of a scale. A picture. Oh, of sorry. A scale. It's a picture of a scale. <laughs> and credibility nation or credibility is, is, is really high and what's really dense, what's really heavy is dubious nation. Because what I needed, Lisa, is I needed an arch rival. If you're creating a movement or you want people to focus on, I, I wanted Credibility Nation to be, I want us to be credible. And by being credible, we're more humane to each other. Just, just simply stated. And I needed an arch rival, but I, it, it's not the same as heaven or hell, black or white, or in the US, red or blue, right? It's the, because I believe, maybe sometimes daily, I do something dubious, right? Am I a bad person because I did something dubious? Well, it depends. If I catch myself and self-correct, you know, then I'm better. If if I have an accountability partner who tells me I did something wrong, if I, if I correct, then I'm acting more credible. I'm, I'm being coachable. I'm being vulnerable. I'm learning. I'm growing, right? And, and I just think this world of being a better human and better to each other is one in which if we're a little bit more maybe organic is the right word. I normally use the word credible. If we're more organic, we're more learning, we're growing, we're we're interacting, it's we're better to each other. And what happens is we've been taught all these marketing cookie cutter approaches to do things. I'll just say, Lisa, one of the things that the interviews allowed me to do is I don't see those anymore. When people come in and I say, who are you? Who do you serve? And they give me some marketing cookie cutter answer. I just don't hear it. It doesn't I don't feel it. And, and this is something I don't, I don't, I don't often say. What happens is when somebody shares their true purpose, I'm going to call it the CPOP, their customer printed positive. When they share their true CPOP, I feel the alignment in their energy. Those words turn out to be the frequency of how they're going through life. And they feel it too, at least for. So here I'll tell you the current battle I have. They feel it for the time we're together. Right. I've now helped over a thousand people mm -hmm. understand what their CPOP is. And I want to make sure that I got clearly the point where you said you were going to share something with me that you haven't shared before. And that is that through 90, 95% of the interview, it took you through 95% of the interviews to realize that you were not living your purpose or that there was a purpose that was oh. like unidentified up until that moment. Is that what you were illuminating? No, although that's a great point that I I think I've said that before, but I did I've never said it from the point of I'm not living my purpose. So maybe I have. But thank you for that. I was getting at the the talking from the perspective of as a business guy taught by this male mentor talking about frequency and alignment. Those are not words that have those are not words that the younger Mitchell would have ever said. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. So for this last segment, I loved hearing about really your mission around credibility nation and it's, you didn't use this word, but I'll say enemy, you know, dubious nation that the, 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 has to have a supervillain, <laughs> you know, that we're triumphing over. What do you feel like is next for Mitchell Levy? When I, thank you for that question. What ended up happening is it was so it's July of 2020. I, I got on this mission. By the way, just so you know, I asked my wife if I could go on this mission because I, I was afraid that if I started illuminating some of this stuff, I would get a lot of haters. Well, and also just putting some timelines together, your stepdad died around this time. Is that right? Yes, actually. Yes, he did. So I, you know, we were talking about grief, you know, as we were preparing for the interview. Most of my listeners probably know that my mom passed away at the end of May and probably goes without saying it's had a huge impact. I mean, we were 
very connected. And I know it's going to have a huge impact on me and my work. And that will all like be unravel or, or, or be reveal itself here. I don't know. I find that to be curious timing, you know, embarking on this pretty significant journey with this book and, and having completion Hmm. around a significant relationship in your life. It's interesting. The book I started before, I think, or maybe around the time he was, he was diagnosed with the brain cancer, but the ability to pick up and do the life purpose, that would have been something he, he would have wanted. Mm, I just be you, be you love, love what you do and do what you, you know, if it doesn't matter if other people don't see it, you've got to be you. Beautiful. And so I made a big mistake when I first, so it was August. I was done with the research. October of 2020, I did a summit. We had 800 people come. And the mistake I made was I thought if I had shown folks the simplicity of being credible, that it would be a bottoms up movement and people would get excited. That's how I felt about GFR. I just thought, all right, everybody's going to, I mean, people are just going to be, it's going to be a war cry. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> and and we we sometimes, particularly the heart-centered folks, we get a little bit unrealistic that just because we're excited about it, we think everyone else will be. <laughs> True. And, and what I realized is it's got to be tops down. And so when I what I've done is Marshall Goldsmith, if you know that name, one of the top CEO coaches in the world. Marshall has an organization called The 100 Coaches. And in November, I was invited to be part of The 100 Coaches. So now I'm officially... Is it literally wearing, 100 coaches? It actually, it's now like 350 <laughs> coaches. So I, somebody doesn't, <laughs> I was curious math, about that. <laughs> the mathematics didn't quite work I well. think that they thought that was a clever name until they wanted to have more than 100. <laughs> it was a great name. And it's still a great name, even though there's more than 100 coaches in 100 coaches. Um, I had to ask. I had to ask. Yeah. Yeah, he's been around forever. I'm, I'm so. Oh, and he's a ama- he's an amazing human, and I loved seeing what he does and what he's doing. And so now I wear the title executive coach, and that's that's turned out to now be half my half my business, which is fascinating, because I can affect many people. If I have a CEO that is responsible for tens, hundreds, or thousands. I'm now touching a lot of people tops down, and what I realize I need to do. I don't know how to affect billions of people yet, Lisa. I mean, tipping that's the scale, what's next for you is to figure yeah, out how to affect the scale billions. of credible versus dubious is billions of people. I don't know how to do okay. that yet. What I can do though is I know how to affect a quarter of a million. So I'll tell you what I'm doing. I created a course called the CPOP course. It is an hour. Imagine if you could spend an hour and actually fully be able to articulate in less than 10 words your purpose, who you serve and how you serve. And that's what the course does. And we've had a couple hundred people go through it. And I've learned so much in 18 months that I just finished the update to the course. Okay. And so that's now recently released and it has everything we've learned. And my goal for the end of 2023 is that 250,000 people take the course. Okay. Okay. So let me just give you a little bit of philosophy. I believe that if I was unrealistic and wanted to get 250,000 people to come to Credibility Nation to take the course, I might get lucky to get 25,000, not 250. So let me tell you what I'm doing. If you're listening to this and you have a training organization or a company that you actually have training in place, my desire is to gift you the course that you could use to train your people. And the thing is, now I only need to reach 250 people who train 1,000 people each. Nice. Yeah. And, and, and I think what happens is we end up starting to circulate a common language around credibility and, and a common way in which people can express the playground they play in. Yes. Yes. Well, I love your formulaic approach. Obviously, that young man and his statistical and engineering those fancy words person <laughs> numbers numbers insert equations analysis yeah, that's, been, that's been me a lot is yeah that, i mean that, i it's yeah. it's a beautiful example of you know head and heart and so i'm grateful for you you know following your heart with 
the champion you are for credibility will for sure make sure people know about, you know, how to get in touch with you, take advantage of, you know, what you're sharing and we'll support you in that millions, that millions mission and really appreciate your vulnerability today and taking a look at the journey that is your life and and got you to be here with us today. Oh, thank you. You've unraveled a couple of things we I haven't tied together before. So I will have much to think through. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, it's been a fun ride so far. And I would, I'm always looking for partners to play with that we can, credibility is not about Mitchell Levy. Credibility is about being better as a human. And I'll finish with that. The thought that I, that I gave in my second TED talk, credibility is a journey not a destination. Beautiful. Thank you, Mitchell. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Well, that was super fun. And I'm excited for you to be able to get Mitchell's free book called Credibility Nation with the tagline is for professionals who want to be seen as credible. So you can grab the link in our show notes for that. And also, if you're in the GFR squad, You're going to get to hear him talk much more about CPOP, which he mentions in the interview. And that bonus training for our GFR squad is what is a CPOP and how does it help with your life purpose? And if you've been curious about the GFR squad, we get together once a month. We take one of our GFR commandments as our theme and we dive into confessions around the question that goes with that GFR commandment. And it is such a great group and there's no coaching or it's really not about solutions. It's so much about just speaking our truth. Like what is our truth in any given moment? So if you want to hang out with me and you are digging the GFR commandments, by the way, if you don't have your copy, go to gfr.life forward slash 12C or click the link in the show notes and get your 12 GFR commandments. It's your roadmap for getting real. And it's not a 12-step program. <laughs> You'll get a little bit of a training on how to use them, but basically you just you pick the one that you really feel like is the thing that's keeping you from being real about what's in your way, about what's keeping your 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 life purpose from making a bigger impact. So I hope you'll join us for the GFR squad. It's only $20 a month. You can cancel any time. You'll grab your GFR commandments and you'll subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of these amazing interviews. All right, y'all. Bye for now.